Welcome to the Nourished and Nurturing podcast, where we empower women to better support their families. My goal is to educate on real food, raising little ones, and becoming our best selves. I'm Michelle Taggy. I am a nutritional therapy practitioner and I have a master's in analytics. I am the co-author of the Real Food for Real Moms postpartum prep guide and I lead a baby first foods workshop. This workshop focuses on giving kids the right start on solid foods by focusing on nutrients, digestion, self-feeding, and flavor variety. The next workshop is on December 6th and it is on sale for Black Friday through November 30th. I am the mom to eight-month-old Ashlyn and three-year-old Connor, and Connor has gone through a picky eating phase, even though he eats foods like liverwurst and sardines, the things he's been eating his whole life. He has hesitated to try new foods now that we're in school, so I'm so excited to have Alyssa on today who talks all about picky eating, and I've used so many of her strategies around utensils and not forcing or bribing kids to eat certain foods. So I am so excited. Alyssa is a registered dietitian and picky eating specialist who helps mamas who are tired of picky eating and mealtime battles find peace and nutrition at the table. She uses a gentle approach to set up the structures around eating and meals in order to raise healthy, happy, and independent eaters. Alyssa is also a mama of two little ones herself, so she truly has been there and gets it. When she's not wrangling kids around the table and in her home, she enjoys reading in silence and getting outdoors with her husband of nine years. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm like super excited to jump into this topic because I get questions about it all the time and... I don't, I, I use resources like you when, when I'm yeah. doing this for my kids. So, um, and vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're in a little bit like adjacent, but different areas. So totally. Um, well, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you interested in like kids and eating habits? Absolutely. So this is actually kind of a funny story. I shared about it recently on a webinar and it was just funny to like go back and relive it. Like, how did I get here? Like, how did this actually happen? Because so you guys know I'm a registered dietitian. So it's funny. I think a lot of people assume because you're a registered dietitian, you know, all the things about nutrition. And while in essence, yes, that's true. We have a lot of education everywhere. It is interesting. Like each dietitian has their own specialty. Like we were just saying we're adjacent, but very similar. Like you have a lot of experience with the baby nutrition. I go more into toddler age and you kind of become specialized in that one area and get your kind of blinders on. And of course, other things impact you and what you learn about. But it's interesting to see kind of how I got to where I am. So I remember distinctly in undergrad, sitting in um, my life cycles nutrition class, learning about feeding toddlers, feeding babies, feeding toddlers, child child, um, age kids, and beyond. And I remember specifically learning about Ellen Satter's division of responsibility, which I talk a lot about on my Instagram and in my podcast. And it's kind of how I set up a lot of the structure for feeding environments in the home. Well, back then I was just learning about it and something just clicked where I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Like, I feel like even not as a mom, this is before I became a mom, we all know picky eating exists typically in kids and even more so typically in toddlers, but we don't necessarily know why or what to do about it. And I remember learning this distinctly in college and being like, that makes so much sense. And of course, everything's easier on paper (laughs) than in real life. But as a college undergrad, just newly married, no kids, I was like, oh, of course, why doesn't everyone do this? This is easy. And then, you know, I go through my internship, I start in a different area, I actually was a tube feeding uh, dietitian for a long time. And then I started having kids of my own. And they started hitting the picky eating phase. And I remember the moment where this happened. I was sitting in a restaurant and we were with another couple friend of ours who had a small child with them as well. And they were buddies with my son. And the parents 
told their little one before they could go play, they had to have three more bites of chicken and just to watch the interaction back and forth. And I'm sitting there with my son who has also not touched his chicken because he wants to go play. And I felt immense pressure as a parent and as a registered dietitian to have this like amazing eater. And of course he's going to eat his chicken and he's going to finish it. And I did all the right things as a baby and oh, it'll be great. And it was just this like really interesting interaction of them adding pressure to their little ones and me realizing that this is how typical parents handle these situations. And they're looking at me, they're looking at their daughter. And so sure enough, I, I do the same thing to my son. I say, you too, you have to have three bites as well. And then you can go play. He ate his three bites. It was honestly no problem in that moment, but that's where things started to spiral out of control. And what I remember about this kind of phase is that feeding comes at you really fast. Like you have a newborn and you're trying to maybe learn how to breastfeed or bottle feed or whatever that looks like. And then all of a sudden they're starting solids and that's a whole new world in its of itself. And then picky eating might set in as early as 12 months and you're like, whoa, what is happening? Now they're rejecting all these beautiful foods that they were eating just a few weeks ago. What do I do? And typically, and out of love, and I was there too, speaking from experience, we love our kids so much. We want what's best for them. We know nutrition is important. So we start going down this road of pressure, which often looks very mild at first, but it gets more and more intense. And this is what was happening with my son. And I remember having to take a few steps back and being like, okay, what do I want here? What's my end goal? How do I want him to become an independent eater? And how am I going to get there? Because this isn't working. And I was just doubling down on things and it didn't feel right. And this is what I always say is like, if your mama's intuition is going off, something might need to change. And that's when I noticed that my mama intuition was like, Hey, something's off. And instantly I remembered sitting in class years ago, learning about the division of responsibility and how simple It is not easy, but simple, right? So I started pulling apart that information that I learned in undergrad and decided to dive head first in and start practicing some of these techniques on my son. And sure enough, things shifted almost immediately within my own home. And I that's when I realized, okay, I need to help mamas do this. This is a tough time. The fact that as a culture, we all know that toddlers are picky must mean that there's something there to kind of unfold and really get deeper into to help them become independent eaters long-term. At the same time, I was also helping adults heal their relationship with food. And I was seeing this correlation that picky eating is truly the first steps that we find ourselves getting into diet culture or pressure around food Picky eating is usually where that stems from. And even though it's well-intended from parents, we want what's good for them and myself included, that's where the pressure really begins, which is really sad. And following that lineage, looking long, long term really can end up at a place of disordered eating or an unhealthy relationship with food as an adult. So I realized I had two goals here to stop the generational cycle of dieting And to do that really is to help moms with picky eating problems in that moment and setting up their structure as an environment to raise happy, healthy, and independent eaters from the beginning, and then also help moms or adults heal their relationship with food. Because that's truly where it starts, right? It starts with us. So this all seriously came on because of my experience with picky eating with my son and kind of getting to this place of a fork in the road. I can either keep going down this path of parenting that didn't feel right, didn't set right with me, and I knew I wasn't going to be really excited with the outcome, or I can make a choice to dive into the research and really pull on my knowledge as a registered dietitian and continue down that road. So that's kind of that's kind what of brought me to where I'm at now. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so lot. how old was your son at the time? So he was about two and a half, I would say. Um, when we were kind of at this crossroads of him starting to go down the picky eating spiral, which honestly is a little late for picky eating to set in. Typically we see it happening between 18 months and 24 months. And he was about two and a half and he really wasn't picky. I wouldn't have called him picky or even selective. It was like normal toddlerhood, right? So there's a difference between like normal picky where they're just kind of like starting to be a little questioning of the food that's put in front of them. They realize they have some autonomy. They realize they can say no. And all of that's really normal. But we as parents are put in a unique role to either take that normal pickiness and either make it worse and last longer because we add pressure, or we can take it the other direction. 
Now, every kid is different and there's certainly some genetics that go into it. And some kids just happen to be pickier or have sensory issues or other things that are in play. It's not solely the parent's responsibility, but we do have a role to play in either making it a little bit easier or a little bit harder on our kids and ourselves, right? Our mealtime environment is certainly um, affected by how our kids are eating or behaving at the table. Um, So it was a little bit later for my son, but that was, yeah, right around two and a half for him that we started kind of down this road that we had to pull back from. Yeah, because I relate to this so much. My older uh, child, my son is, he just turned three And I feel like we're still kind of in it, Um, Mm -hmm. but he, it's funny because he's picky, but other people look at it and they're like, oh my God, he eats so so healthy. And I'm like, well, these are the foods he knows, but if you try to give him new foods, he (laughs) doesn't want them. I feel like, is, is that a thing? Like there's kind of a window where they're really not wanting to try new foods as much after a certain time? Is that the same kind of window? Yeah, absolutely. So toddlers typically develop something called neophobia, which is fear of new foods. Um, And they actually, it's an instinctual part of them to fear new things in general. This is where we start to see our kids kind of, they maybe went down the slide, no big deal. And now they will hesitate at the top and you're like, what's going on? Last week, you had no problem going down the slide. Um, And same thing with food, right? So this is where they become toddlers. And if we think of it just kind of in um, past, you know, in the past of toddlers were able to then toddle, toddle away from their mom. And at this stage too, they're putting everything in their mouth. It's one of their main sensory ways to explore the world, to try new things. They would put things in their mouth. Well, now they're hitting this age, which is typically when picky eating comes in. And it's actually instinctual for them to start fearing things so that they're not putting things in their mouth, which can be highly dangerous. And most of us parents are very grateful that they grow out of that stage of just putting anything and everything in their mouth, because it is so hard to keep everything that might be a choking hazard out of their way. But this then kind of rolls over into food. And so what we see is toddlers start to get apprehensive about foods that maybe they were eating just fine last week, or they're new foods, or they haven't seen these foods in a while. And they start to, it's actually a fear that comes in or an uncertainty. And then if we continue to harp on that uncertainty, and we don't really approach it with the right methods, that can double down in our kids. And they, we know that I think toddlers are like the most stubborn of all of us. If they have a reason to be, they will truly hold on to whatever they believe in that moment, regardless of any logic, right? And that's just with their development. So it is definitely normal for kids to go through what I call a picky phase. Um, that phase certainly can just be a phase. And a lot of times, especially with parents who might take my table talk program or follow me and, and work on the methods that I teach with their little ones, that phase can be relatively short, relatively painless, or it can get worse depending on how we approach it. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't kids that are outliers that never get picky ever, <laughs> or there are kids that maybe get picky. Their parents do all the things that add pressure or you would think typically would double down and the kids still grow out of it. So there's kind of a spectrum here. And that's where there's, of course, outside factors that are affecting the kids, whether it's other kids that they're around, their siblings, other family members, school environments, or just who they are genetically and some kind of nature in them as well. This is so interesting. I'm like jotting down all these things I want to ask about. But um, if we can go back to what you were saying, I'm sure you go into this in your program, which we'll link to. But what you were talking about, what you learned in school, like the developmental approach to it, could you give a brief overview of that? Yeah. So the the method I was speaking of specifically is what's called the division of responsibility. This comes from Ellen Satter, um, who's also a registered dietitian who studied um, feeding very, very um, intensely, which I'm so appreciative um, of her work. And it's called division of responsibility. I kind of claim it as like the roles at the table, the roles that the parents play, the roles that the kids play. So the idea behind it that's been proven in research very strongly is that when we're sitting at the table, when we have a meal time or a snack time, what works best for the child and for the parent is to stick to your roles, which means that at the table, 
as the parent, we are in charge of what goes on the plate. So we're setting the menu. We get to decide what comes into our home, what goes on the plate, how it gets cooked, kind of all those big picture things. We're also in charge of when they get to eat. So we set the schedule of them eating. Now, of course, we want to be considerate. And we know in research, they need at least four to six eating times throughout the day. So that doesn't mean we only feed them once a day, if that's what works for us. No, we still need to be considerate of their needs as a growing individual. So um, we set the schedule of when food is available. And then we also set um, the where. So we get to decide where they're going to be eating, whether that's at the table, outside at a picnic, whatever that might look like. And then the kids role at the table is deciding what out of the foods you've offered, put on the plate for them, put on the table, they're going to eat. And if they're going to eat those foods, and then also how much. So they're in charge of kind of that aspect. So I like to kind of describe it as the parent is in charge of the big picture or the table in general, and the child is in charge of their plate. That's so good. Um, I think I might have seen this from you, but when you have a toddler that's running away from the table, like not sitting down, do you have an approach for that? Oh, yes. So, I have, <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, so many parents struggle with this same thing um, with their kids actually sitting and being present at the table. So a few things here. First is we often as parents expect way more out of our kids than we ever really should. So toddlers attention spans, as we all know, are very limited. So typically, I recommend to first and foremost, set our expectations where they should be, um, which oftentimes means dropping them. So sometimes as parents, we're expecting this, you know, two, three, four-year-old to sit at the table for 30 minutes. And that's just not realistic for them. Their attention isn't um, developed enough for that quite yet, but we can lead them into that. So first and foremost, we want to set our expectations. And what that means, what I teach parents is it's about one to two minutes per year of age, we should expect them to sit at the table which sounds really short, right? Like for a two-year-old, that's four minutes. Really four minutes, that's all we're giving them. Well, remember that their portion sizes, typically, not always, are a little bit smaller. So usually they're eating smaller amounts. So they can do that in a faster time than necessarily we can or going if they're going through a growth spurt. But then also we start at that four minute mark about, and then we add time over time. We encourage them. We praise the behavior of them sitting at the table. We make the table a fun place to be. We engage with them. We make it a place where they want to be (laughs) without necessarily um, forcing them to eat. So it's a positive mealtime environment. Maybe you're having fun conversations with them. You're being goofy about the food with them. Um, You're having fun utensils. You're adding novelty, toddler's attention span. Again, we need to continue bringing their attention back to the table. Um, So really encouraging that behavior and then ending the mealtime and saying, okay, if you continue to get up, you know, and this comes with age as well, but if they continue to get up and run away from the meal, this is where it's really helpful to have that role at the table. And you say, okay, this is meal times. We're sitting down and eating a meal. It's non-negotiable. If they continue to get up, you say, okay, well then meal's going to be over. We're not going to eat again until lunchtime. Now this might sound really strict, but here's the thing. They only need to learn this about once or twice before they learn. They need to sit and eat and fill their bellies until next time that they're offered food, because that's going to be really uncomfortable for them (laughs) to not have eaten. Now this comes with time, I would say two, two and a half plus is where you start to be maybe a little bit more um, like uh, enforced on this, but really it's a good habit to set for our kids because it lets them feel hungry. And I think so many parents are afraid of letting their little ones feel hungry, but that hunger is what drives them to come to the table, sit at the table eat their food, try new things and be engaged at mealtimes. And if we don't let them feel hunger, they're really truly never going to want to eat what you're serving or sit at the table for long periods periods of time. I do recommend for the process of teaching our little ones, remember we're starting really small, like maybe four minutes, to encourage them and praise them for the behavior that they're doing. You're doing such a good job sitting at the table talking with mommy. This is so wonderful. I love being able to sit with you at the table. Um, So we're praising them for the behavior, not necessarily for eating the food. 
but for really coming and spending time with us. And it's really should be a fun environment, bringing them up to the table. Um, I see a lot of parents putting them in the high chair and leaving them in the kitchen. We want to make sure that they're at the table with a family experience. We're sitting down, we're taking time to really connect with them. We're putting down our phone, whatever that looks like. We're not, you know, cleaning up the kitchen while they're trying to eat and make it such a positive experience that that's actually where they want to be and are ready to be. Um, And it really makes mealtimes overall feel encouraging and positive for them. And then too, like I said, working up that time that they're um, expected to sit at the table. A lot of parents have really good success with visual timers, like a sand timer, or there's like a visual timer on Amazon that I use that like turns red when you turn it um, and it slowly beeps down. So for kids that maybe need a little extra encouragement to let them know, hey, we sit at the table, this is part of being at the family or being a part of the family, we sit at the table for 10 minutes or whatever minute time you're up to, um, setting that timer and letting them experience what that time feels like for them so they know what their expectations are. Now, there's a caveat with that because some kids get really hyper-focused on the time, and we don't want to do that either. So if it works for your kid, I encourage that can be a really fun and um, helpful way for them to realize what's expected of them. And then over time, you likely won't need that timer anymore. Yeah, that was you. I saw you posted something. It must have been a week and a half or two weeks ago, and I sent it to my husband. And we started doing just setting an Alexa timer. Yeah. So we're we're literally only a week and a half into trying this with him getting up from the table, but it's he's kind of excited about it. Like we do the we do five minutes, and then he gets to get up. And then he'll kind of come back and he's like, okay, five more minutes. And he'll sit down and like want to eat more food. Yeah. It's like you said, it's not this like ideal picture perfect. Like he just sits down and is completely quiet until we're done eating. But um, it's, yeah, it's working out well so far. Um, So I think that was a great idea. And he gets the concept, you know. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point that you make that it's not picture perfect. It's not beautiful. It doesn't feel like this picture perfect family meal that maybe you see on like leave it to beaver. But this is us like literally teaching them how we want family meals to be an important part of our family, which research has shown is so incredibly important in their long term success. So really, this is the time that we teach them the behavior that we want them to have at the dinner table. And we do that best by modeling it and staying calm at the table and keeping it a positive environment. That's typically my number one, you know, thing is actually the parents behavior at the table, um, then the child's and really setting the tone kind of there and knowing that this is a learning process that there's not going to, there's most likely no, no three-year-olds in the world that just like behave perfectly, especially at dinner. And I talked about this recently on my Instagram that we should kind of expect better behavior or even possibly more intake in food and nutrition earlier in the day. By dinner time, they're so exhausted. It's so close to bedtime. They've had a ton of stimulation through the day. But a lot of times our expectation, again, is that dinner is the family meal and dinner is the most connected time with them, but they're often at their lowest. So again, it comes back to what our expectations are for what that should look like. So I think that's, I think that's great that you're working on it. It's a process for sure. I'll tell you that. (laughs) So expect them to be a (laughs) three-year-old. Exactly. Yes. Expect and let them be three. (laughs) No, but I like that too, because my daughter is almost eight months now. And that's part of what I really love about the, we don't fully do baby led weeding, but the baby led weeding meals, because she gets to be a part of dinner too. It's, um, it's not like one's one person's feeding her. It's like, we're all like, it it starts early, this this meal experience, but absolutely. um, It starts early and takes time. (laughs) Yeah. This podcast is partially supported by the real food for real moms postpartum prep guide. Hillary Bennett and I are nutritionists, and we co-created this resource to inform and empower mothers and prepare for a healthy and happy postpartum period. In our guide, we cover the unique nutrient needs of the postpartum mom and dive deep into the various aspects of recovery and lactation. We make sure mom and baby both have their bases covered, and we pair this with yummy recipes that will make it easy to stay nourished. Our guide takes you through practical steps for stocking your freezer with casseroles, soups, snacks, and so much more as well as giving you convenient recipes for after the baby comes. As a listener of this podcast, we're inviting you to be a part of our beta launch. 
You can snag a copy now for 30% off and we'll send you the final version once it's released later this year. You can also get a free sneak peek by going to realfoodforrealmoms.com and joining our email list. We're so excited to have you as a part of this community and we look forward to supporting you through motherhood. What about sneaking food? And by the way, thank you so much. I know I'm totally going off script with a lot of uh, my own questions or things I've heard from people, but. Oh, no worries. um, I love it. Yeah. Like if they're sneaking food, like basically if I leave something out on the counter, it's (laughs) seems to be like fair game. Um, But how do you deal with that? Yeah. So that's really interesting. So sneaking food, I think the biggest thing that we need to do as parents is take a step back and say, okay, are they sneak? What is their motive for sneaking food? Like so many kids and depending on their age and their development and what's happening in the home, there could be so many different reasons for sneaking food. So, um, and first and foremost, if your child is adopted or has had any food trauma in the past, food should be available all the time. I just want to put that out there. Sometimes I get that question. Um, and I just want to let you know on that. So the tips that I'm giving you is for a child that doesn't have any food trauma in the past or, you know, hunger, starvation issues. Um, but for typical kids that are developing, typically sneaking food comes from the idea that they're hungry, (laughs) you know, that they're actually hungry. And so what we can do is look at our meal and snack schedule. Like I said before, one of the parents' roles is deciding when they eat and making sure that it's filled enough. Most kids need to be eating every two to three hours. So depending on nap cycles and school cycles and whatever else is going on in your life, you want to make sure that you're offering them a full and balanced meal or snack, which honestly, snack and meals kind of interchangeable as far as what's offered every two to three hours. And you want to make sure it has plenty of fiber and good fats and protein in there. And of course, we can't control what goes in their mouth, but at least controlling that on the plate. So they have the best chance at feeling full for longer. A lot of times parents and myself included, there are absolute days where I just throw some goldfish in a bowl and call it. And I'm like, you're good. Just have some crackers. But when we do that, what ends up happening is that they run through that energy really quickly and then they're hungry. And so sometimes we see, and I would say even majority of the time we see sneaking food as just, it's just their way of saying they're not trying to be disobedient. They are literally just trying to tell you, Hey, I'm hungrier than you think I am. (laughs) Hey, I'm growing. Um, I need more opportunities to eat. So I would say first and foremost is assess your meal and snack schedule. See where maybe you can tweak it. If the sneaking is coming from a place of like being deceptive or, you know, they're trying to hide it from you, I would highly recommend you have a no shame approach. There's no shame about sneaking food or wanting certain foods. Um, Food should be completely neutral in our home. And we've seen that in the research to develop as healthy, independent eaters as adults have a healthy relationship with food. So we want our kids to have that too. If we start making it seem bad that they're hungry or bad that they want certain foods, it's actually going to increase that behavior even more. So I would have, depending on the age of your child, having a conversation with them, asking them maybe why or what's going on, if they can articulate that to, that to you. If they're toddlers, like you said, and it just happened to be in their line of sight, it's just more of an issue of, okay, this is my role as a parent to make food available at certain times and not available at other times, which sometimes means not keeping it in their sight line. Um, and also setting those boundaries of, oh, I see you see the banana up on the counter absolutely. Let's have that with our snack. Let's play with blocks until snack time. Um, So not making it a shameful approach or anything, you know, to really focus on. And I always like to say, if your kid finds food and you weren't aware it was out, I don't recommend snatching it out of their hands and saying, no, 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 it's not mealtime, right? Like we have a flexible approach here. Sometimes I think in podcasts, on my podcast, on my Instagram, I come off a little bit more rigid than it really should be. It, It should be more flexible. I like to say, 80% of the time, we're doing it 80% of the way. So we are always trying. But at the same time, life is flexible, life changes, and our kids need to learn that too. So kids really do learn inconsistency, but they also need to know. Yeah, that's really good. They're finding food. Yeah, if they're finding food on accident, I usually make like a little funny joke about it. Like, oh, you found mommy's whatever or something like that. And then I let them finish it. And then I, you know, tuck away the rest. Um, for later. And then usually with that same food that they're sneaking, I make sure to bring that food back out 
at another time so that they know it's not a forbidden food. So a lot of times parents are like, oh, they always grab the fruit snacks or, you know, whatever that might be. So make sure that those foods aren't off limits um, as long as they're safe for your child. That's so Yeah. I, our big thing now is yogurt. He knows how to open the fridge and he knows oh, where yeah. the yogurt drawer is. And he wants like five yogurts a day. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, I'm convinced those yogurt packs are not big enough for most of our kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get them like the higher fat, like the Siggy's triple cream too. So it's not mm-hmm. even that sugary, but he just, I think, yeah, I think he probably needs it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this is, this is kind of a personal question, but so my son just started school. Uh, I'm sure other parents have similar questions too. He just started school a couple of months ago at three years old and he doesn't eat a lot of the same foods that they serve at school. Like he doesn't really like bread or cheese, um, which is crazy. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but we pack him a lunch. So he kind of have a, has a special meal and that's something I was kind of worried about with like him not eating the same thing as the other kids. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, I'm like, well, he's three. He probably doesn't care that much. He just wants his lunchbox. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> is there any anything you have to say about, like, packing things for kids or, like, um, like anybody who's packing lunches, I guess? Yeah. So with packing lunches, I mean, I, I'm with you. I think it's our perception more so than our child's perception that they're going to be upset with whatever we packed. And I think that just comes from us, like knowing our own food more. Does that make sense? Like we are literally more comfortable with our food. So we think it's boring, but truly, and this is something I've learned just being on Instagram, like, oh, people actually want my recipe for spaghetti. Like, don't we all have a spaghetti recipe, but you're so used to yours that you think it's not fun. I don't think toddlers really have that quite yet. Um, They might see something more novel in someone else's lunchbox. And if they're able to tell you about it, you might be able to figure that out where you can then offer those foods as well. So they're not feeling like they're missing out on X, Y, or Z. But I think the biggest thing when it comes to packing a lunch, especially when they're bringing it to a school is making sure that it's a balance as balanced as possible. And this is true for staying at home as well, but a nice balanced option. So like we talked about before that protein, fat and fiber in there as well to keep them full for longer, to keep them interested, and then still offering at least one item in the lunchbox that they're interested in that's a safe food that they feel good about eating and that they can fill up on. School brings a whole new set of dynamics for kids as far as pressure goes. For some kids it adds pressure because everyone's like watching them. For some kids it's like group think. So they tend to actually eat better in groups than they do on their own. Um, they eat better socially. So it really depends on your child and I think talking to your teacher and getting kind of a scoop of what lunchtime looks like? You know, how are they acting? Are they interacting with their food? Are they upset at their food? Are they not eating their food? And then kind of assessing too what's coming back home. What aren't they eating when they're going? And maybe having a little mini experiment of why that might be. Um, And sometimes depending on your child's age, they can fill you in on a lot if we just take the time to listen too. Yeah. And I guess for my son personally, like they serve food at the school, but he's not interested in it other than the fruit because it mm-hmm. is, it's foods he's not familiar with. It's like noodles, quesadillas, like things he's never eaten at home. So I'm packing him like liverwurst and seaweed, which, <laughs> uh, but these are the, this is comfort food to him. This is what he knows. And there's part of me that's like wondering should we not send a lunch one day, like, and have him try the food at school? But it's like, he like clutches this lunchbox going to school. (laughs) I'm of the belief that the safer we can make kids feel around food and their eating environment, the better. So if he feels safest with his own lunch, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If he comes home one day, you know, as he gets a little older, and he asks you to eat you know, what the other kids are eating at school, maybe you do, you know, have one day a week that he gets to have the school lunch as well. So I think in general, um, it's, it's more about their safety and making sure they feel um, connected with their lunch and their food and having a good relationship to it, rather than it is about our perspective of what's going on. I think parents, we bring in our own kind of mentalities around food or school lunches or, 
you know, eating environments that our kids really don't have yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, then that's, that's totally it. Because no, I don't even restrict what the school has. I'm like, serve him everything you have every day, even if I like highlight what I think he'll eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has that option and he does not want it. And he comes home and talks about how he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't want those noodles. And I'm like, you don't have to eat the noodles. But I do have this like almost guilt of like, should I be making him eat what they have? Like, sh- should he, you know, like all the other kids are eating that. Uh, and it's totally my own issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, it, it, the goal here, and this is like what I always try to talk about is we're trying to raise long-term independent eaters that are fully capable of making their own decisions around food. The goal, of course, is to introduce variety and let them have a um, varied diet of what they feel safe around. Um, so a lot of times that looks like incremental change. Um, I'm not a fan of like, for example, in this situation, not sending him with food that he feels safe around and only having food that he doesn't like or doesn't understand or doesn't want to eat. Putting our kids in situations where they're basically forced, their choice is to go hungry or eat food that they don't understand or feel comfortable around can actually cause like, it sounds really dramatic, but it's like food trauma. I mean, it's literally like these two choices to them. It doesn't feel safe. So I think absolutely right to, and this is something I talk about inside my table talk program as well, is to encourage or during, you know, um, those environments to make sure we always have at least one safe food. So for your child, it might look very different than another child. Um, But encouraging, I love what you're saying. You still let them offer it to him. But if he's not interested, he doesn't have to eat it. Yeah, my question was very specific to my scenario, but I'm really glad we got to that. Like the the at least one safe food thing. I think that's a good thing to note. Yeah, it can be really powerful for kids that feel uncomfortable at mealtime. Some kids, you know, don't seem to really care at all. And those kids, you can just serve them anything and they feel fine. Um, I get a lot of funny questions about like, what do you mean feel safe? And all I mean by that is just that they feel comfortable. Um, I use the word safe a lot, but it's just a food they're comfortable with. Like you're saying, it doesn't necessarily have to be a favorite food, but it's a food that they've proven to eat in the past, eat in the past. Um, so if nothing else on the plate, if they're worried about or feel stressed about or afraid of the other foods and they're not willing to try them, they at least have one thing that they can fill their bellies with until the next time we eat. So good. Well, okay. So this is a question I get a lot too. Like somebody sees my son's plate, which I post a lot about because I'm a nutritionist and I have a toddler. So it's something I share and they'll say something like, how do you get your kid to eat X? Mm -hmm. And I say, I don't, I don't know how to get your kid to eat that. This, like, this is what my kids always eaten. Mm -hmm. Um, so how do you approach that kind of thing where it's like, if you, um, so I, you know, brought my kid up like eating a certain way and he's always eaten that, that a certain way, but some people want to find a healthier diet for their kids later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, like say you're trying to change what the kid eats when they're in this picky eating window, you, you've changed your own diet and now you want to change your kid's diet. Does this make sense? Like how do you um, shift that diet if they've already gotten into habits of eating certain foods? Yeah, I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, but it's starting young. I mean, I absolutely love it when I've got pregnant mamas following me already and they're like looking to the future of like, okay, we're going to start young. And really the biggest and best thing you can do, and I'm sure you can attest to this too, when they're babies and you're doing either baby led weaning or purees or combination, whatever that looks like in your home, it's just a combination or a variety of flavors, right? Keep the variety really broad and continue to expose them to different flavors. If we're in a situation where a kid is picky and is only eating maybe a handful of safe foods, A, that's a really good indicator that we need a little bit more support, a little help um, to expand their preferences. But And I had an, a similar experience where I showed a picture of my son eating salad And he came back for like thirds, fourths, fifths, like he just kept eating it one night. And someone, you know, I had several people message me and say, how did you get your kid to eat salad? And I made a post and I just said, hey, this is not by accident. This is by design. I have spent years 
not only exposing him to salad in some small way, but also eating salad in front of him myself. And that is a big thing that I think a lot of parents miss that family meals aren't just important because the research is really clear of some of the outcomes later in life, but family meals are important because they need to see what you're eating. It's your safe to them. What you're doing is safe and they'll follow suit in what you're doing. So we do set the example. And I also think we have like many family cultures of what types of foods we eat, what things we talk about, how we interact with each other. And every family is going to be different. So it's really easy to hop on Instagram and be like, oh my gosh, their kid eats sushi. Oh, my kid would never eat sushi. Well, do you offer them sushi? Have you offered them sushi for a long time? Do you eat sushi in front of them? There's a lot of, um, like, I think our own, again, this comes back to like our own ideas about foods and what our kid will and won't eat. And we we put them in a box before they're even able to show us what they're willing to do. And then we decide because we gave it once, twice, even five, 10 times that, oh, they're just never going to eat green beans. No, we just need to continue to encourage them to try new foods by presenting them with those foods in new and unique ways and flavorful ways. So many times, especially I hear parents have trouble with veggies or chicken specifically, and it's usually because we're presenting it in the exact same way. Um, And it's not fun to eat like a raw green bean, right? if we cook it up with some butter and garlic and we're enjoying it and it's actually delicious and enticing, that can go a long way for introducing our kids to different foods. Same thing with salad, like going back to my um, example with my son, I didn't serve him lettuce and some tomato with no dressing. I gave him a nice, beautiful salad and there was corn in there and black beans in there and tortilla strips and delicious dressing that I made and all these different things. It was a delicious salad. It had a lot of things that he loved in there and that led to him loving it. So there's ways that we can kind of bridge one food to another that we want them to include in their diet, but it's a slow process and it's an intentional process. I would imagine with the foods that you're talking about with your son, it probably wasn't the first time that he ate it. That's not always true. I mean, some kids, the first time you give them broccoli, they'll eat the whole thing and never look back. But for most kids, it takes time. It takes intentionality. And it's typically a food that you include regularly inside your house or your kind of family culture, if you will. So it's normal for you. And again, this goes back to kind of what I was saying about what foods are kind of normal to us. They seem boring or bland, (laughs) but this is the same thing. You could very well look at, you know, the woman or mom who reached out to you and said, oh, how do you get your kid to eat that? And you might very well be able to look at her and say, how do you get your kid to eat that? And it's because everyone's different of what we continuously serve and encourage. But I think for kids that have just a handful of safe foods that they're willing to eat, it's on us. Our role at the table is to decide what goes on the plate, what comes into the home, how it's served, how it's cooked, and really encourage those small bridges from one food to the next in order to get them to expand what they're willing to eat over time. Yeah, this yeah, that's really interesting because I there as you were talking, I was thinking of like, oh, my son doesn't like raw vegetables. Like as you were talking Mm -hmm. about the salad, and I'm like, well, I don't really love raw vegetables. Like, (laughs) like so you know, like cucumber slices and stuff like that. Like, I like cooked vegetables, and I'm like, oh, I put them in a box, and we don't have it around much, and Uh it's it's interesting. So, I, I mean, this is I think a great bridge. Last kind of question I wanted to talk through, which was how parents eating habits and our attitudes around food like we've this has been like threading through our conversation but um like how the parents attitude towards food and their diets or um like diet in the greater sense of the word and also the like you know I'm dieting sense of the word like how is that impacting our kids yeah so there's there's just a lot of research out there that shows our kids will eat what we eat Um, it's very common specifically, there's been research done about vegetables, how often your kid eats vegetables versus how often you eat vegetables. It's directly reflected in your children as they age. And then as adults as well, which I think is, is really profound and really interesting. But at the same time, in my own experience, I eat and cook very similarly to how my mom eats and cooks. Maybe there's slight adjustments, of course. And, you know, I have branched out in certain ways or dropped some other things that she's done. But 
I think that's just very typical with what we've been raised around and the research really supports that. So I think as a parent, when we see our kids struggling with certain foods, how can we model that behavior in a way that they will pick up on? Because kids, it is 100% monkey see, monkey do. We know this, right? And we cannot control what parts of what they see they pick up and what parts they see that they don't pick up. Unfortunately, we can't control that. But we can control how we show up at the dinner table, how we show up in cooking or eating, um, and what kind of foods. Now, as far as what you're saying about like actually dieting and more of the like going on a diet or eliminating foods, restricting foods, this also has a profound effect on our kids long term. And this is why I really focus on um, raising independent eaters. And what I mean by that is an eater that is able to look internally, not externally, on what they need to eat, what they should eat, what they want to eat to honor their body and no one else's wishes. And I know that can be kind of a controversial statement because so many parents are like, but I know that they need more protein and I know they need more veggies. And sure, you can know that, but you can't know how hungry your child is. You can't know what they need in that exact moment, but you can set them up for success. And part of that setting up for success is showing them your relationship with food is healthy and positive. And that can be a lot of work to undo. And I think the most important part of that is showing them that you're working on it. I think sometimes it's hard for us and it's definitely hard for me to think, okay, I'm already dieting in front of my kid. They've already picked up on it. What's what's the harm? Well, we can show them that we're working to include more foods in our diet, that we're feeling safe around more foods, that we know that we can trust our body. And if we know that and we trust in our body, they're going to learn to trust their own body. And it's really all about body autonomy, right? To teach our kids that we can set up the stage for you, but only you know how much you need to eat in every moment and how much you need to stay full. And then over time, the autonomy, you know, kind of switches where then they start to become in charge of when things are served and and what they're eating as they grow into adolescence. And then obviously, and hopefully (laughs) move out one day and live on their own. But we want to slowly bridge them into that and model the behavior of, hey, this is what a healthy adult looks like with a healthy relationship to food. And that can be really important. But I do want to encourage anyone who's out there who doesn't have a current healthy relationship with food, maybe you're skipping meals in front of your kids, maybe you're cooking one thing for the family, but eating something different for yourself, they will pick up on that, which is good and bad, right? I mean, it is good that we have that kind of power and control in our our family to set the tone but it can also be really scary. Um, So I'd encourage you if you are struggling with your relationship with food, it's a really great place to start. It's a really great why for why you want to heal your relationship with food and your body for your kids, but that shouldn't be the ultimate goal. Really, truly the actual change that you feel within yourself and your relationship with food will be so monumental and so freeing that your kids will pick up on it. It's, it's literally like um, just magnetic. and <laughs> It spills out into everyone else in your life. So I would recommend you do it for you, but it is a really great incentivizer to say, and I'm going to raise these happy, healthy, independent kids who feel so secure in their body and knowing that they can trust their body and make good choices that honor them long-term. And that's really the goal in my opinion, is to raise kids that can do that and go out into the world super secure in them and their body and their ability so that they don't fall for dieting. They don't end up feeling like they're not good enough, like they're not worthy, like they can't eat certain foods. They feel restricted and feel constant obsessive food thoughts in their head all the time. And that's really kind of why I do a little bit of both. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, because I think even um, if you are trying to eat healthy, quote unquote, but you're like forcing yourself to eat steamed broccoli that you hate, like, um, and then you're serving your kid this like steamed broccoli and like, you're like, come on, we have to eat three bites or whatever it is, like, and you hate it as you're doing it, like, I think the kids pick up on that too, where it's like, I think just like, uh, that's one thing I tell parents a lot is like, learn to cook vegetables in a way that's really tasty, like add that, add some spices and then like find a recipe you like. And it's, um, 
that's, I mean, my husband got like that for a while. Like he'd be steaming vegetables for my son and my son wouldn't eat it and he'd get frustrated. And I'm like, well, would you eat that? (laughs) Right. Right. And my son loves vegetables, but I mean, I don't, I mean, I I don't want to hate on steamed broccoli, but I don't like it. Uh (laughs) I want it roasted. And yeah. uh, yeah, and salt and butter on there. Yeah, I yeah. think somewhere down the road, our our messages got crossed where we thought certain foods couldn't be enjoyable and other foods could be. And I think that's so backwards. I think all food can be enjoyable, um, and we should aim for that. We should enjoy, you know, as often as we can. We should enjoy the foods that we eat. And you know, it really is interesting when you do learn, like you said, to really cook vegetables or you know even meat. A lot of people are cooking meat wrong and they think they hate it and it's like well we can maybe fix this you know how we're actually dressing it and how we're cooking it um to be much tastier in our diet um and same thing that goes with trying to like healthify certain things like cookies well you try to healthify cookies and they're not delicious anymore but you still have a craving for cookies and then you're eating these bad cookies that are quote-unquote healthified but then you end up eating 12 because they're not satisfying you. So instead, why don't we find a way to balance and really truly find like what's actually going to satisfy us? And that satisfaction factor cannot be underrated or overrated, I guess, because it is so, so important to us, not only enjoying foods, but also eating foods that um, truly honor our body and our health long term. So good. Well, can you tell us more about your Table Talk program? Sure. Yeah. So um, I run a table talk program right now a few times a year. I open up the doors and it you do have lifetime access to the course material. Um, and it's, oh, gosh, I have planned it to be like a six-week program that parents go through the videos and their trainings in there that go for six weeks. But you do have lifetime access. You can always go back and rewatch them or watch them at your own pace. Um, and I open the doors a few times a year because I couple it with live Q&A sessions with me because I really find the most um, the most efficient way to implement the program is to get your real life questions answered. So many times there's like self-paced courses out there. And I'm, I'm not saying I'll never do that because I do think those can be really helpful for busy moms. But sometimes those are helpful in certain ways, but I truly believe in a whole method approach, a whole kid approach. And sometimes no matter how hard and how much I research and study, every kid is so different. And so it's really effective to have access to a dietitian to ask your questions to. So my table talk program is kind of formulated as a six-week picky eating program that you walk through and then you bring any questions that you have once you've implemented the program to me in live Q&A calls. So the next time I'm opening it will be early 2021. Um, And uh, that's really exciting. And I've just seen such great results with parents who sign up and finish the program and, you know, ask their questions and get their questions answered um, with what's going on in their home. And literally last time that I opened doors, I was telling people about it. And a mama messaged me and said, when I started Table Talk, I had less than 10 safe foods I could give my daughter. And now it's over 100. And she started in July. So literally in two months. It's just insane to see the results that are in there um, because picky eating is so much more than just continue offering, which I think, you know, like we were talking about a little bit before we recorded, Instagram can only go so far. It's 15 minute seconds on your Instagram posts. You have a caption limit and picky eating can be, if you need the information, can be a lot deeper than that. And so um, it's a really powerful way to get all kind of your angles and bases covered, really a true method that um, really helps parents get through this picky eating phase, hopefully a little less painfully. So, (laughs) Well, that sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to check it out and I'll share it with my audience when that opens up again. Um, But yeah, can you tell us where we can find you? Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at mama and me RD. Um, I also have a podcast as well. It's um, called nutrition for littles. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts like this one and it's only 15 minutes. So I try to keep it short and sweet. Um, But we go in depth every Wednesday on some new topics. So uh, mama and me RD on Instagram and nutrition for littles on podcasts. And you can find me, Michelle, at michelletaggy.nutrition on Instagram and on my website, michelletaggy.com. And I will talk to you all next week.